Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Michael Gabriel, author of Physician Soldier. Michael Gabriel is the author of Physician Soldier, the South Pacific letters of Captain Fred Gabriel from the 39th Station Hospital. Who was Fred Gabriel? Uh, Fred Gabriel was my dad. He uh, was born in 1914 in Eldred, Pennsylvania in McKean County. And uh, serves four years in the United States Army in the Medical Corps in the South Pacific uh, during World War II. Uh, what was it that made you write this book? You know, that's a, a good question. Uh, somewhere, you know, I actually don't remember when this was, my family came into possession of his World War II letters, and he was still alive, and they were always kept in a box, and I never really looked at them that much, and I never really thought that much about it. And then after he died, uh, I'm not sure where the letters were, but sometimes when I would go visit my mom and my family in Bradford, where I grew up, uh, I would see these letters, so I brought them back with me to Kutztown, and at some point I was looking at them, I noticed they had begun to deteriorate, and I thought, I probably should scan these and maybe transcribe them. And the more I typed these, the more I began to realize that there was a very interesting story here. There's over 300 letters, and you... It, goes from 1942 to December 1945. So it's the whole course of the war, his whole military service. So it started out as a personal project that turned into something much, much bigger than I ever anticipated. Now you're a historian, right? I am. And is, so you have a personal connection to these letters, but as a historian, is it unusual to find this number of, of letters uh, from, from a war like that? It is, it is, at least I believe so. I'm actually a, a Revolutionary War era per, uh, historian, so this is a very far cry from my um, primary area, but you know, you'll find scattered letters here and there, but four years, hundreds of them is, uh, pretty rare, and uh, somewhere in 1944, when my dad's on Guadalcanal, after Guadalcanal, the fighting's over, he writes uh, his parents a letter. Most of these letters are to his parents, and he says, please keep these letters because we're not supposed to keep diaries, and this will be my recollection of me being in the war. Well, luckily, my grandparents had been keeping these letters for two years. Now, there's gaps here and there, but um, it's a wonderful collection not only about my dad, but you see all sorts of insights about kind of behind the scenes World War II. Everyone thinks about uh, battles and invasions and Iwo Jima, but there, there's a lot of other things going on. And it's a medical unit, which is even a little more unusual. Well, let's talk a little bit more about his background. So he grew up in Eldred, Pennsylvania. What, what kind of a town is that, and where is it? Eldred is in McKean County, little town, still a very little town, probably a popular in, in 1940, I think it has a population of about 1,000. It sits right on the Allegheny River, about two or three miles from the New York border near Olean, New York. The nearest city is Buffalo. And Eldred um, periodically has massive, well, had through the 1970s, massive floods when the Allegheny would flood. He talks about 
some of these floods. And he grew up right on Main Street. My grandparents had a clothing store that I vaguely remember, and it was right behind the train tracks. When I was a child, uh, we would take the train, and the train would stop and let us off in the backyard, which, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't happen in today's world. But a small little rural town in uh, northwestern Pennsylvania, mainly based on lumbering. Now, you mentioned uh, your grandparents. Uh, who were they? Uh, my grandparents were Louis and Dora Gabriel, and uh, they, they immigrated from... Today it would be Lebanon, back then it was Syria in 1903. They came separately. They marry here in the United States. And uh, my grandfather was on Long Island for two or three years, and then he moved to western uh, New York and settles in uh, Eldred somewhere around 1910, 1911, marries Dora, and they will have five children, who are my dad and my uh, aunts and uncles. Do you know how they ended up? Uh, you mentioned a clothing store. Was that something that he was involved in before he immigrated, or was you it... know, I I really don't know, but I have found that many Lebanese Syrians were involved. They were merchants. They were involved. Uh, once they come to the United States, they open stores. I've had distant cousins who ran grocery stores. Uh, several who ran um, clothing stores, like my grandparents did. One of my aunts. And the man she married they actually show up in the book, uh, Esther and Duffy Ferris. They had a clothing store. My aunt Vic and my uncle George Figori, they had a clothing store. So maybe back in Syria somebody did, but I actually don't know that. Now, what kind of life did your dad had, had growing up? Was it a middle-class lifestyle? Yeah, I think very much so. And from what I get, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> what I gather is, my grandfather, who I never met, he dies in 1948 or 1949, was quite the entrepreneur. Uh, he ran the clothing store, and apparently he bought property that he leased for people, and I think he actually had some interests in oil wells, but um, my dad grew up in Eldred, and he would go swimming. There was a local swimming hole called Barden Brook. You know, I think very rural small town America was his upbringing. And uh, where did he go to college? Uh, very proud alumni of the University of Notre Dame. Kind of interesting, um, my, bro my dad is the third of five children. He's the first son. And there are about two-year intervals. And I have an had an uncle, Lou. Lou and my dad, Lou's two years younger, they went to grade school together graduated from Eldred High School in 1936. They go to University of Notre Dame together, graduate in 32 for high school, 36 for Notre Dame, and then they go to Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia together. So they're together their entire adult life from literally first grade through medical school. Did he ever talk about why he was interested in medicine? No. Um, as long as I remember, my dad was a doctor and was always sort of interested in the sciences, but he was also fairly hit, interested in history, which I think is partly where I got that. And um, when I grew up, we always had books in the house, and I remember my, my grandmother's house, grandparents' house, there was always a lot of books. So reading and uh, was always a very big part of being a, a Gabriel. So where was he when the war began? 
When the war breaks out, my dad is actually in uh, Erie, Pennsylvania, doing a medical residency, and then he signs up for a second residency at um, Jefferson. He goes back to Jefferson, and from the records, it looks like he doesn't finish that, and in August 1942, he is inducted into the uh, Army Medical Corps as a second lieutenant, well, as a first lieutenant. Uh, did he have any kind of military training before the war? A little bit, you know, and, and it's it's very interesting. I found out a lot of these things after, as I was writing this book after my dad had died. I, he, he didn't talk a whole lot about this, but he and my uncle were in Army ROTC in medical school. I actually have pictures of them at Carlisle Barracks in the summer of 1938. So they, they, they did four years of ROTC and kind of, interestingly, kind of ironic in 1940, my dad applies to join the Army Medical Reserve, and he's turned down because he's only five foot three. He's too short. But once the war breaks out, five three is not an issue anymore. They they need they need doctors. Now you mentioned uh, your father and Lou kind of paralleling each other through their early life. Uh, did they both go into the Army around the same time? It, it looks from the record Lou goes in a little bit earlier, maybe several months earlier. I, and I su suspect it had something to do with that uh, residency that my dad was doing at Jefferson. Uh, Lou is assigned to the 14th Armored Division and serves in Europe. My dad is in the 39th Station Hospital. He goes to the South Pacific. And I had a third uncle, uh, Joe, who's about 10 years younger, he uh, goes into the Army Air Corps, but he never leaves the United States. Yeah, in the letters, uh, he writes he writes to Joe, and I guess one of the topics of conversation was where Joe was going to go to college. Is that, is yeah, that right? Joe doesn't get to go to college because of the war, and uh, what ultimately happens is he goes to St. Bonaventure, which is in Allegheny, New York, about 10, 15 miles from uh, Eldred, where they grew up. But uh, throughout the course of the letters, Joe is being trained by the Army Air Corps, it's not the Air Force yet, and he's in Hamilton, Hamilton College in upstate New York, he's in Florida for a while, he's in Bayonne, New Jersey for a while, and he, he's transferred all over the United States. So when your dad goes into the Army, where does he, where was his first uh, station? Uh, first station is, is uh, Camp Barkley, Texas, which is near Abilene, and they're there for about nine months, I believe. Then they're sent to the Desert Training Center, which is in Yuma, Arizona. They're there for about six or eight months in Yuma. Then they're sent back to Texas for about three months, and then they're sent to the San Francisco area where they deploy. And it's funny, when you read the letters, uh, they were the, the 39th Station Hospital thought they were going to be sent to North Africa or to the Mediterranean because they had spent so much time in Yuma, Arizona doing desert training. So they assumed that's where they were going. But um, in retrospect, my father in spring 1943 is detached from his unit and sent to the University of Chicago for about eight weeks and he's doing uh, tropical medicine training so maybe that was a tip-off they were actually going to send him to the Pacific but maybe the army didn't know yet they sent him where they were needed. Now how soon after he uh, goes into the army uh, does he start writing the series of letters? Almost immediately I think the earliest letter is from September 42 and he was inducted in August so almost immediately. 
So at Camp Barkley, what, what were they doing? Was he actually uh, working as a doctor there? Or uh, no, at Camp Barkley, they're basically learning to be a medical unit. Uh, a lot of physical training. My dad talks about they're doing 10-mile hikes. And um, they're also learning to work with the enlisted men. The enlisted men are learning to be medical technicians and uh, transcriptionists. And the officers are learning partly... Um, they're already most of them doctors, but they're learning things. Uh, it talks about survival skills. It talks about military courtesy. So probably to be a, a doctor in the Army, per se. So you mentioned he went to the University of Chicago for some training. He also went to Washington, D.C. That, that seems to be a theme throughout the, the, the letters where he's talking about the different types of schools and courses he's taking. Correct. Yeah, they, they in, in fall of 42, he's sent to Washington, D.C. for uh, eight weeks on, I think it's like infectious diseases. And then he's sent to, for um, the uh, tropical training at Chicago. If you also read the letters, uh, he's trained he's, he's for, for chemical warfare. He's the 39th Station Hospital's um, chemical warfare officer in case they ever get gassed. And uh, there's actually pictures with them wearing gas masks. And uh, he also receives anesthesiology training. But probably, you know, if you think of it logically, if you're going to send a hospital into a combat area, those officers probably have to have a lot of different trainings because if somebody becomes incapacitated, killed, sick, whatever, somebody else has to be able to step in. Had he specialized in a particular field of medicine before he went into the Army? No, and you know, that's a very good question. As I think about it, that might have also been one of the reasons he was picked. He was just out of medical school, so he doesn't have a specialty yet. And if you read the letters, a couple of times he actually talks about, I wonder what I should do when I get done. He talks about pathology, talks about general medicine, talks about surgery. He ultimately decides to become a radiologist, but he doesn't do that till after he's married and has actually four or five kids and is back in the United States in the, in the mid-1950s. So at this point, he's a general practitioner. So you, you mentioned in the book that uh, not much attention by historians had been focused on medical units. Correct. And you talk about uh, Studs Terkel's book, uh, The Good War. Why, why was that such a, an important shift in, in how people look at You know, at the that's a, a very good question. You know, we, we talk about the greatest generation, and sadly the greatest generation has sort of begun to fade away. But in the mid-1980s, I think it's about 1985, this journalist historian named Studs Terkel does basically an oral history of World War II. And rather than just interviewing soldiers or generals or people who were in combat, he interviewed a wide variety of soldiers, enlisted men, officers, women, uh, people who were in the, you know, maybe the Red Cross, but also civilians back home. So he's one of the first people that I can find who really is looking at the war as a broad social movement that it involved many, many, many millions of people beyond what we think. It's literally a whole generation. And he begins to attract attention to people who aren't necessarily great heroes and they're known in the newspaper or in history book, but they, they play a very important role too because if it's not without all these other people, um, wars don't get won, farm crops don't get grown, tires don't get produced. Soldiers don't get letters from home, which keeps their morale up. You know, it's, it's a, literally a, a total effort of society. 
Now, in these letters, uh, you mentioned a few different types of letters. He talks about V-mail and airmail. And at one point early on, he sends a, a similar letters by both V-mail and airmail to see how long it takes. Did, yeah. What did he find out from that? Uh, I think in general, V-mail is actually a little quicker. V-mail's kind of interesting. What, what, what the Army did, what the military did to save space is they would have um, soldiers write letters on a predetermined piece of paper and they had to stay within the lines and then they would photograph the paper, miniaturize it, put it on microfilm, fly it across the Pacific and then they would print it and blow it back up to about half its normal size. And uh, I've seen V-mail artwork and, and, and if you read enough letters, not just my dad's in general, people are always concerned can can the receiver actually read the V-mail? And I've actually seen V-mail magnifying glasses. It's very interesting when you think of how many millions of letters must be being written that it's more efficient to shrink the letters, fly them across the Pacific or the Atlantic probably for that matter, and then re-enlarge them. But I guess with a limited number of airplanes, ships, and the, the logistic demands of war, any space you can save is, is worth doing. Now, his parents were writing to him as well. How did they keep track of these kind of conversations that they were having? Uh, it's very interesting. If you actually read the letters, my dad will say, I'm responding to the questions you wrote me on March 5th or something like that. And he tracks how many letters he gets and who they're from and when they arrive and how quickly they arrive. What's tremendously surprising to me is even when he's in the South Pacific, he's getting letters in about 10 days or two weeks, which to me seems very fast, maybe even in the modern world if I was going to write to New Guinea or something, let alone in the middle of World War II. And he also seemed to be receiving quite a few packages as well. And he was writing to his parents to send him a watch and other items. Yeah. Uh, that seemed to be a pretty efficient way to, to get things to him. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, they, his, his parents sent him an awful lot of food. They, they, and he talks about sometimes it's spoiled, but usually it's not. Um, they send him slippers because he can't get slippers. A couple, One or twice he talks about sending him undershirts and pajamas because he can't get those on Guadalcanal. It's very interesting to think about people packaging these things up. And sometimes he will say, this one was delayed because it looks like water splashed on the mailing label and you can't tell what, who it was supposed to go to or what unit it was supposed to go to. But um, it sounds like my grandparents were wonderful in keeping him well supplied with things he wanted. Sometimes he actually complains they were sending him so much stuff he couldn't keep track of it and he didn't have the space for it all. And he talks about he and his fellow officers are going to have to have a popcorn party or a sandwich party because he's accumulating too much food and it won't keep. And he, when he was based in Yuma, Arizona, he writes about Lieutenant, Lieutenant Edith Greenwood. Who is she? Yeah, no, that's, that's a very good story. Um, Edith Greenwood is a, a nurse who's in Yuma, Arizona. And in 1942, there's a fire in a hospital and she helps evacuate uh, injured soldiers and is awarded, I believe it was called the Army Soldier Medal. And she's the first woman to receive the Army Soldier uh, Medal. And it turns out my dad actually knew this woman and in 
April 1944, Collier's Magazine, which was sort of like maybe People Magazine today, uh, featured Edith Greenwood on the cover. And in the letters my dad writes to his brother and to his parents, um, make sure you look at Collier's because the woman on the cover is actually somebody I know. Now, he writes uh, a, a lot of little details about things like buying bonds. Uh, what, how were, what was the importance of bonds during the war? Uh, very, very important. Uh, world War II is outrageously expensive. I have no idea how much it costs, but the United States needs money. It's also a way of tamping down inflation. So the federal government has bond drives. I think they have at least eight or ten major bond drives and every town, every community, every county was assigned a goal. For example, I believe I found somewhere Eldred's goal for like bond drive number seven was like $190,000, which you think of for a town of 1,000 people is a lot of money. Well, the enlisted men and officers are also under very heavy pressure that rather than take paychecks, they should be buying bonds. So um, in a couple letters, my dad said, he's signing up for bonds or he wished he hadn't signed up for so much bonds because he would have sent more money home to his parents. Uh, and as late as 1945, November 45, as the war is over, um, my dad writes a report and he says still something like 30 some percent of the officers are still buying bonds and you know 52 percent of the enlisted men or something like that. So. It's very important to financing the war that soldiers and civilians uh, bought bonds. And one of the reasons the American economy is going to boom in the 50s is all these people were forced to save money while all those bonds come due 10, 15 years down the road. So while he was in the United States before he deployed, was he able to come home and visit Eldred? It looks like he comes home twice, each time for about 10 days. He's home in um, fall, of 40, fall of 42 and then fall of 43. And uh, in both cases, there's pictures of him with his brother, at least one of his brothers, and um, with his family. I also have some pictures that aren't in the book uh, of my dad in Eldred in the wintertime. So it must be December. It must be the second one, December of 40 probably December 43, and he's wearing his uniform and he's standing by a fire hydrant and there's about a foot of snow on the ground. So uh, he is lucky enough to be given two um, fairly long leaves or furloughs. It's also interesting, um, he talks about getting orders to be allowed to ride the trains because the trains are controlled to some degree by the military to transport troops. When did he uh, finally deploy overseas? They, they deploy over, he, he goes into the military in August 42. They deploy overseas in uh, January uh, 1944 aboard a ship called the USS West Point, which turns out was a luxury liner. It was the USS America. And there's about 7,000 soldiers on this ship. Um, a very striking letter. There, there's some letters that are very ordinary, but there's a couple very striking ones. And the letter where he deploys he writes to his parents and he says, um, I can't tell you where I am, I can't tell you when we left, I can't tell you where we're going and I can't tell you when we're going to get there, but we're at sea. He says, I'm well and I'm doing fine. He said, you're not going to like this letter, but this is the best I can do. He also says, um, don't worry about me, I'm having fun. You might not hear from me for a while, and then he says, and you might never hear from me again. 
but he says, uh, no news is good news, and I will write as often as I can. And you can imagine as a parent, that must be a, a very difficult letter to get. Had he been to sea before? No. As a matter of fact, he gets tremendously seasick. He writes about being seasick a number of different times. And I actually at one point corresponded with one of his very close friends from the military, another doctor named Eddie Hyde. And Eddie Hyde wrote me a letter in, 19, in the 1980s after my dad died. And he said, um, one of my vivid memories of your dad is your dad, myself, and several other officers were in the bow of this USS West Point, and we were in the middle of a storm, and he said, your dad turned the, the, the most garish shade of green I'd ever seen in my life. And he said, for like three days, all of us were so seasick, all we could do was lay there. And he said, after that was over, he said, food never tasted so good. Since he hadn't been to sea before, the Pacific Ocean is pretty big. What was his, did he write about his impressions of, of this ocean? Yeah, very, very um, artistic almost. He talks about the water as Prussian blue. He talks about um, the sunsets and how you can see stars very different from what you can see in Eldred or in Texas or in Arizona. And um, he's very much fascinated by the size of it but he also has a very heavy respect for when it's not calm, it can be very, very unpleasant. As a matter of fact, throughout the letters, there's occasional comments that the soldiers, well, not so much the soldiers, the other officers, remind him of him being seasick. So apparently he was pretty seasick. Now, the, a lot of time navies have traditions of uh, when people cross the equator for the first time. What was that experience like for him? Yeah, uh, the first time somebody crosses the uh, equator, and I think this is still done today, they have a ceremony. It's called uh, the, the Neptune Ceremony, and they give everybody a card. I actually include in the book a copy of my dad's Neptune card. It says the date. I believe it's like January 19th. And... They didn't do this because it was wartime, and I suspect they were trying not to divert from what they need to be done. But traditionally, there's a huge ceremony, and people who have never crossed the um, equator are called polywogs, and people who have, you know, make fun of them, and I think they have to dress up. And there, there's a whole elaborate naval ceremony for crossing the equator for the first time. My dad got a little part of that, but not the full-blown treatment just because of the, the circumstances. Now, you mentioned the letter where he told his parents he couldn't tell them where he was going. Where did he end up going? They end up going to Guadalcanal, and Guadalcanal is very famous in World War II, first American offensive in the Pacific. But the fighting on Guadalcanal ends in February 43. They, they arrive in January of 44. So they're there almost a year after the fighting ends. But um, my, if you read the letters, my dad, uh, the, the 39th Station Hospital is encamped at a place called Longa Point, which is where most of the fighting was. So he talks about how there's abandoned um, military equipment, there's abandoned shells, there's foxholes. You can see uh, the battle damage from the island. What's interesting, and this is where you begin to see like another side of World War II maybe people don't think about, is my dad is in a medical unit, the 39th Station Hospital, but the hospital's not activated. They don't need it. So most of the doctors and enlisted men are farmed out to other medical units on the island. My dad 
is part of a small cadre where they basically just look after the equipment. So for nine months, uh, my dad talks about they're basically bivouacking, and he talks about how boring it is because they're, they're not allowed to treat patients. They do a, an outpatient clinic for people who get sunburn and maybe malaria and things, but they're not actively treating patients. And he repeatedly talks about how difficult of a time that was uh, to keep the soldiers' morale. They form softball teams, they have volleyball, they have basketball, but keeping these men active and engaged for nine months, I imagine, was very difficult in the middle of the Pacific. Uh, certainly going from Pennsylvania or even uh, Texas and Arizona to a South Pacific island, uh, he would see many different things. Did he write about plants and animals that he saw there? Yeah, he talks about seeing sharks. Uh, he talks about lizards. He, they actually name a lizard who, who lives in the tent with them, he and three or four other officers. His name was Cecil. He talks about if they have food and they leave it open, the, the, the lizards will eat the food or the ants will. Um, one of the really interesting stories, and this is, there's a letter about this, and luckily there's a picture that corresponds with this, is they would go swimming, sometimes in the ocean, sometimes in a river called, uh, I believe it was the Tenaru River. And uh, in one letter he says, yesterday one of the enlisted men shot an 1,100-pound alligator in the river where we used to go swimming. And there's a picture, and I mean, this is an enormous alligator, and all the soldiers are around it, and you think, holy smokes, like that's probably lurking in the grass where these guys are swimming and, you know, doing whatever. So uh, very much taken by um, the uh, fauna and wildlife of the South Pacific. Talks about um, kind of, guess what, like, kind of like Venus flytraps, uh, plants that eat insects, things like that. So very much so. He, he's very aware he's in a very different place than Western Pennsylvania. Now you mentioned the, the photographs that are in the book, and it does have quite a few showing the life there. What did you learn about his life overseas from those photographs? Uh, th those photographs are tremendously invaluable. Um, some of those photos were actually with the letters, but my dad also kept a photo album of about three or 400, almost 500 uh, photos that I actually had largely forgotten about and thank goodness one of my sisters had saved this and once I finished this she she found the photo album. The photos add a whole new level of detail because a lot of times in the letters he wasn't allowed to give specific names like he talks about we went to an island but you don't know what the island is but from the photos on the back of the photos it said it's Savo Island which is kind of a famous naval battle that's fought near Savo Island. It's about 20 miles from Guadalcanal. Um, they also go to an island called Tulagi, and he doesn't say we went to Tulagi because he's not allowed to. He's not even allowed to say he's on Guadalcanal. He just says, I'm somewhere in the South Pacific. So seeing the locations help. The other thing the photos really do is my dad talks about these other uh, officers and some of the enlisted men quite a bit. And to see their pictures and see who they are and what they look like really adds a level of detail and understanding that you don't, you wouldn't get from just one or the other. How was he sending the photos home? Were they developing them on site and then sending them? Or was he yeah, sending them? as a matter of fact, my dad uh, repeatedly comments that they have trouble getting them developed or get, getting them developed well, and then because of the humidity and the rain, the photos are spoiling. So he periodically sends letters home. A lot of the letters close with, 
I'm sending a dozen letters, or tomorrow I'm going to send you a packet of letters. And you can tell some of the letters are in, uh, some of the photos are in pretty bad shape. Some of them are miscolored, some of them are faded, but um, they're certainly way better than nothing. And thankfully, my dad labeled the back of probably about 70 or 80 percent of them. So you know who the people are and where they are. And even the ones that aren't labeled, are labeled sometimes um, by looking at the other ones, you get a pretty good idea probably where they're from. Now, in the letter, he writes about some his many duties. He was sanitary officer, malaria control officer, orientation officer, and voting officer on Guadalcanal. What, what were his duties as voting officer? Uh, very interesting. I actually never knew about this, but it's 1944 presidential election, and the Army is very concerned that soldiers uh, be able to vote. And my dad repeatedly stresses they're not allowed to say a party they endorse or a candidate they enforce, but they're supposed to make sure um, soldiers know they're eligible to vote and they're supposed to distribute and then collect the absentee ballots. So my dad has a couple of different meetings with whoever is the head voting officer on Guadalcanal. He's his unit voting officer and he talks about you know, today I gave a lecture to the men about the importance of voting, and tomorrow I have to go to Captain Hyde's company and get their ballots. And um, it's very interesting to think, you know, to, this was an election year, a lot of controversy about elections that, you know, in 1944, the military wants to make sure that soldiers in the South Pacific and probably in Europe and everywhere else have the opportunity to express their view on who they want to be president and members of Congress everything. Very interesting. I was, it's logical that they would do that. I had never actually thought of that. I'd never heard of a voting officer before. Now, when he was on Guadalcanal, did he have a chance to meet with uh, residents who were originally from Guadalcanal and some of the surrounding islands, or was he mostly yeah. interacting with uh, other soldiers? Mainly soldiers, but there's a, a fairly large indigenous uh, population, and my dad repeatedly talks about how they go to um, these villages on Guadalcanal, also on Savo Island and Tulagi, uh, he takes some pictures of them. Uh, he talks about trading with them, and he says they're very shrewd traders, and what they want is, is tobacco. And he says, very shockingly today, you know, we, we try to discourage tobacco. Uh, he says, you can see three- and four-year-olds chewing tobacco or smoking pipes, and uh, they want authentic South Pacific artifacts, and they, they can't get them. You know, the, the, the natives don't make them, or they're too shrewd to trade them for just tobacco. He, uh, kind of interesting, you can tell he's a doctor. There's actually quite a few photographs of my dad with the indigenous people and the Solomons, also on Angar. And um, sometimes they're children, sometimes they're adults, you know, but it's interesting when you actually read the back of the letters, he'll say, notice, you know, this one obviously had this disease when they were a child because they had pox on their face. Very, very clinical to some degree, which I guess is good for a doctor to think about. Now he writes in one letter, he says, a funny thing about being abroad, life here isn't on a different plane as I had imagined, but maybe that is because the place is so Americanized. Uh, so he, I guess his experience there was uh, n not so extreme. No, you know, I suspect he, he was expecting something very exotic. And he sometimes talks about, they go to movies a lot, almost every night they go to movies. And he says sometimes the movies will show tropical scenes, and he talks about how unrealistic the tropical scenes are. He says, in the movies, they'll show palm trees, and that's right, and they'll show a beach, and that's right. But he said, aside from that, he said, you know, there's 
20,000 US GIs on this island and they have hospitals and they have movie theaters and they have a Red Cross and they're playing baseball and you know it, it, it's certainly not an exotic location maybe what you might expect or not to the degree he expected. Now, one of the figures that appears uh, frequently in, in the letters is uh, Father Charles Liebel. Who is he? Charles Liebel, a very interesting figure. Someday I'm going to actually do a little work on Father Liebel. Um, Father Liebel is uh, the, the Catholic priest at St. Rayfield's Parish, which is Eldred. And Father Liebel is sort of a pillar of the community. He, he's the vice president, one of the founders of the Rotary Club. And uh, the main thing Father Liebel, he's also a friend of uh, my grandparents and my dad. My dad writes several letters to Father Liebel. But the main thing Father Liebel does, which is just really fascinating to me, and this is the thing I want to investigate, is starting in about 1943, January, February 1943, Father Liebel decides that so many Eldred and area men and women are in the military all over the world that he's going to put together a newsletter for them. So every month, from, once again, February, March, April of 1943 through about September 1945, he publishes a monthly newsletter and mails it to literally hundreds of men and women around the world. And I actually, uh, somebody actually compiled all the Father Liebel letters except possibly two. And uh, they're fascinating to read. And you can see there's Eldred men and women serving everywhere you can imagine. There's a, a man named Herb Gruber who uh, is involved in sinking five Japanese warships off New Guinea and he receives the Distinguished Flying Medal multiple times. Uh, my dad talks about a man named Dar Feely. Dar Feely's B-17 is shot, over Vienna, shot down over Vienna and Dar Feely loses both his legs but the Germans capture him and he comes home. My dad comments, at least he lived and came home. Um, through the Father Liebel letters, you find very tragically about Eldred uh, men who are killed in the war. He talks about a man named uh, Lawrence, nicknamed Nunny Lambelay, and uh, Nunny Lambelay is, is killed at Anzio in Italy in 1944. And when my dad was at Camp Barkley, he actually met uh, Nunny Lambelay's brother, you know, they, my dad and this man's brother were together at Fort Barkley. So Father Liebel does uh, an amazing job of keeping Eldred servicemen and women connected to their hometown. He talks about football games, he talks about the weather, very slice of life and also very interesting. He talks about the oil industry in northern Pennsylvania. He talks about how every little town in northwest Pennsylvania has war industries. They're making glass for uh, vacuum tubes. He talks about women going to Buffalo to make aircraft. It's very interesting. Father Liebel uh, does a tremendous service doing this. And in one of the last letters my dad writes, um, when all of us come home, we should do something for Father Liebel to thank him for this. So as your father's overseas, he's writing about his own experiences back home, but it sounds like he was still curious about what was happening in his hometown. Very definitely, very definitely. You know, it's interesting um, when this book was being reviewed, it's published by Texas A&M University Press. And 
Texas A&M, send it to some other historians anonymously. They, they don't know who wrote it, but what do you think? And, and one of the reviewers loved it, said, publish it exactly the way it is. And another one said, um, this is really interesting, but there's so many little details about these families, like nobody really cares about them. Maybe you should just pick the important letters. Well, there really aren't any important letters. They're all sort of important letters because collectively they tell you about the home front, they tell you about the South Pacific, they tell you about training of officers, talk about nurses. Um, there's just so much little details that you find out. Some of them are kind of funny, some of them are kind of tragic. Uh, for example, when VE Day is declared Victory in Europe and then VJ Day, Victory Japan Day, uh, you find out through the letters there's spontaneous parades in Eldred and the town almost closes down and that was probably true among, along many, many towns and cities throughout the United States. There's a very famous photo of the sailor kissing the nurse in Times Square when the war ends. I suspect things like that happened everywhere and it's very interesting to read it about a local community and, and, and real people doing real things. Now, in addition to the newsletter and his family's letters, uh, he, he does seem to be able to keep track of news around the world through radio. Uh, what's he listening to? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, they talk, and it's funny, it's such a different world with technology. Um, but they're, 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 apparently there's two radios. There's a, a, a unit radio, and apparently a couple of the officers have radios, and, and they listen to the war news coming out of San Francisco on the hour. And when they're on Guadalcanal, they actually have maps up, and they're plotting the progress of the Allies in Europe and the Allies in the Pacific. Um, the other one he mentions a couple of times that's pretty interesting is they can get um, Japanese radio, and the Japanese had somebody who today is sort of collectively known as Tokyo Rose, and it was broadcast in English, and they were trying to get um, U.S. soldiers to desert and to break their morale. So they would talk about how badly the war is going and how many American ships are being sunk and how many American aircraft are being shot down. And my dad laughs at these um, reports from this Japanese uh, radio station because a lot of times they know they're wrong. For example, I mentioned my dad deployed to Guadalcanal on a ship called the USS West Point. And there's actually a Japanese broadcast that says, oh, we, we, we sunk the West Point in March or in, in, in January. Well, my dad was on the West Point in January, so they knew it hadn't been sunk because they were on it, you know? So it's very interesting. Um, they're listening to the two sides of the war, one coming from the United States, one coming from Japan. They also very much pay close attention to things like the San Francisco Conference where um, uh, the United Nations is created. It's interesting reading the letters. They're listening to the radio to Truman to announce the war is over in Europe or Truman to announce the war is over in the Pacific and when will the wor uh, word come. They talk about D-Day he says um, they announced D-Day at a movie. My dad's at a movie, and they interrupt the movie to say, well, you know, the Allies have landed in France. And uh, through the radio, he talks about Allied progress, like the fall of Cologne and, uh, you know, troops reaching the Rhine, things like this. So you can tell these men are very concerned what's going on in other parts of the world. And 
more importantly, when can they go home? Now, he writes a lot in the letters about the movies that he's watching, which seems to be a very frequent occurrence. But one of the words he uses when he's writing about movies is the word punk. <laughs> and he, he says that it, it, there are many variations, but one time he says, just returned from seeing a punk movie. What was he uh, using Punk that word means for? bad or boring. You know, punk, punk the word changes. Uh, he uses that word a lot. I can even remember when I was a kid sometimes, if he didn't feel it, he goes, I feel punk today, you know. And um, I sometimes wish... He, he, he goes to movies a lot, and he mentions 68 by name, but I sometimes I wish he would have mentioned the name of the punk movie because I was interested to know what he considered a bad movie and why it was a bad movie. But um, there's movie theaters all over these islands. It's, it's, it's fascinating how many movie theaters. He actually includes a couple pictures of movie theaters on um, an island he's on called Angar. And I've seen at the National Archives pictures of movie theaters throughout the South Pacific. And they hold thousands of people, and they usually had logs for uh, seats. You mentioned Angar. Uh, there was uh, the battle was still going on when he was there, right? Yeah, Angar is the one place where the 39th sees combat. Uh, Angar is a little island in what are called the Palau's. People have maybe have heard of Peleliu. Peleliu is uh, um, about 10 miles from Angar. It's the same island group. And when the Marines are landing on Peleliu, the army is landing on Angar. And the fighting lasts on Angar for about a month. His unit lands about a week or so before Angar is cleared. And um, as they're landing, U.S. warships are uh, shelling Japanese positions on Angar. And I know um, when you look at the photos, there's um, sandbagged medical units. Like, they, they expect combat. They, they, they're, they're very much... Uh, creating defensive fortifications to guard this hospital unit. So Angar is a, a live island. Now he writes uh, about his experience there saying that inadequate latrines and heavy casualties led to swarms of flies. Yeah, uh, yeah, you can imagine Angar must have been a horrible place. There's thousands of flies there. There's very heavy casualties on Angar. The United States sustains very heavy casualties, and the island's only about a mile uh, large, and it's made out of coral rock, so you can't dig anywhere. And... Um, uh, it's, it's funny to say this, but they use DDT on a massive scale. And today, you know, DDT is this horrible thing that destroys the environment, and it certainly is. There's a couple letters he says, uh, DDT is a wonderful thing. But I guess if you're fighting swarms of mosquitoes and flies that are carrying all sorts of diseases, anything that gets rid of that probably does seem like a wonderful thing if you don't know the long-term consequences. Did he write a lot about the food they were eating? Yeah, food is, is, is a big topic of conversation. And talking to other veterans, um, they say that, that that's kind of universally true. Um, on Angar, and then he's also on Saipan, the food's not so good, and they would get what were called fresh food ships, which apparently literally had fresh foods. And he said, oh, today we had fresh apples. And he said it was so good. But he, talk, he talks one, there's one letter from Christmas, and he said, um, Christmas is a wonderful day, and we had a wonderful day. And he said, our, can, our turkey was out of a can. And he said, you know, it wasn't like being at home, but it was wonderful to have Christmas. And my thoughts were with the family, you know, all day long. Uh, food is a very, very big topic. It's interesting. Um, in one letter he talks about, today we got something different. It's called Coca-Cola. And each officer was given like 12 bottles. But he said, I didn't like it, so I gave it to my uh, patients. Talks about... Twice a week, they're also given beer. 
at least on Guadalcanal they were, and how hard it was to try to keep beer cold on Guadalcanal. Now, in Guadalcanal, you had said that his unit wasn't activated, uh, but once they went to Angar, were they fully operational as a hospital at that point? Yeah. Uh, they land on Angar while fighting is still going on, and right as the fighting is just ended or right before it ends, they actually take over for a field hospital. So the, the way they take over is they give the field hospital their tent so it can go somewhere else. I actually think they would go to Peleliu. And uh, my dad's unit takes over treating uh, the wounded soldiers uh, that this other field hospital had been treated treating. You know, it's interesting, the 39th Station Hospital was designated to have 250 beds. And the first time they're activated on Angar, there's almost 400 patients. So they, they're working at a very high rate. And uh, I don't remember the exact numbers, but um, I found the unit histories. Altogether, they treat literally two or 3,000 inpatients on Angar and then another maybe 8,000 patients as outpatients. You know, they do a procedure and then they send these guys back to their unit. So very heavily uh, engaged in uh, providing medical service while on Angar. Uh, what kind of duties did he have there as a doctor? Was he still more general or was he more specializing? A, a little bit of both. You know, Angar is a pretty tough place. And in one of the letters, my dad comments, he, he's doing three jobs. So my dad is, um, he has his own ward where he's treating patients. He is also um, the laboratory officer. So he's the officer involved of typing blood tests and all sorts of tests. He talks about they're typing, um, they're looking for parasites and things like that. I imagine probably not real fun medical work to do. And um, he also is, you know, a sanitary officer and things like this. So um, he mainly is involved in lab and treating patients. From the letters, it sounds like a lot of his patients aren't necessarily battlefield casualties. They're more communicable diseases or tropical diseases, and he periodically comments on sometimes his lab is closing down, not closing down, not so busy, and other times they're just packed to the gills. Um, they also treat some of the indigenous people who are on Angar. So I have a photo where um, you can see a couple U.S. service soldiers, and you can also see a couple of um, Angar natives in, in the hospital bed. So they're treating a wide variety. Uh, the 39th Station Hospital also treats uh, some Japanese prisoners of war, which in a lot of places you didn't get many prisoners of war. And there's actually a picture my dad took of um, several Japanese prisoners of war actually uh, in a mess line being fed. Now we talked about uh, his parents immigrating from, from uh, what at the time would have been Syria. Yes. Uh, how did his uh, fellow soldiers uh, treat him regarding that? Uh, it, it's kind of funny, you know, they, 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 they teased him about this. Syria is, is not even Syria, it's part of I think it's called the, the French Mandate, it used to be Ottoman Empire, and uh, a very funny letter to me is in somewhere in May 1945 the war in Europe is over or very close to being over and the war in the Pacific is grinding down uh, Syria declares war on the Axis and the officers tease my dad that Syria is finally entering the war at this critical stage and they begin to call him the co-belligerent <laughs> instead of an ally he's the co-belligerent so after Angkor where, where did he go uh, from Angar, they're sent to Saipan, 
and Saipan is uh, in the Marianas, it's near Guam, and just like on Guadalcanal, the 39th isn't activated, instead they're divided up among all these other hospitals, although the 39th is told it's going to be deployed to a forward area. You, 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 the, the inference I take, I don't know if this is right, they're, they're getting ready for the invasion of Japan, but that doesn't take place. So my dad is assigned to the 148th General Hospital, and he's the uh, laboratory um, supervisor for the 148th General Hospital, and as the war ends, the 39th Station Hospital is deactivated. Kind of uh, 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 an odd prize. My dad is the last commanding officer of the 39th Station Hospital, largely by default, because most of the other officers have been sent home. So he, he's the last commander of it, and he oversees the deactivation of the 39th Station Hospital. Now, we talked about his writing about all these movies that he was seeing, and at one point he writes, uh, last night's movie was Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, <laughs> and he comments, whom I believe to be grossly overrated. Yeah, not a big fan of Lauren Bacall, apparently. I, I do remember my dad liked Humphrey Bogart. There's an old Humphrey Bogart movie I remember watching as a child called Sahara, about this Humphrey Bogart as this American tank officer in, in, in North Africa. And my dad liked that movie, but he apparently wasn't too impressed with Lauren Bacall. So uh, what did he write about the atomic bomb? Uh, a little bit, you know, he, and it, it's very interesting. He, he says, uh, he calls it this terrible new weapon, and he says, I, I almost wished it hadn't been developed because once somebody has it, everybody else is going to get it. He says it sounds very rugged. I think he calls it terrible, but um, it, 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 it ends the war. He doesn't comment beyond that. But he's very much aware this is a weapon that might change the world. So when he's on Saipan, uh, as the war starting to wind down, are people being sent home at that point? Yeah, the people are being sent home. The Army creates a point system, and depending how long you've been in, and if you have children, and how many children, and when you get 80-some points, you're allowed to go home. And he's one of the last people home. Uh, and. These, these men are being sent home very rapidly. There's a couple cases where officers are given like two hours notice that they're being sent home. And every, almost every letter he says, oh, we lost two more officers, or Hyde, my best friend, is going home, or Parker is going home because he's been declared surplus. So um, he's also very disappointed how slow the pace of demobilization is. He says, he says there's way too many doctors and nurses over here that who we frankly don't need why don't they let us come home sooner so he's not actually um allowed to return to the united states till january of 1946. is there any sense of what his homecoming was like no uh not really but i have a really neat photograph of my dad standing in the main street in eldred and he's in his full uniform and he's holding his two nephews hands they're about three and five, and on the back of the letter, somebody, I assume my grandmother, wrote, Freddie back home, April 1945, or 46, April 1946. So after the war, did he settle in Eldred? No, he doesn't. Um, my dad comes back. Um, he's in Eldred briefly, but he goes to uh, Michigan, uh, 
where actually my Uncle Lou was, and he does a residency at Wayne State Hospital. He goes to Erie, Pennsylvania, back to St. Vincent Hospital in Erie in the early 1950s, meets a nurse named um, Elizabeth Brown, who he marries. That's my mom. And they live in Erie and have six children. Then they go to Philadelphia for about 10 months where my dad is certified in uh, radiology. He goes to Auburn, New York, Pittsfield, Massachusetts, where I'm born. And then he and my mom and my six brothers and sisters settle in Bradford, which is about 16 miles from Eldred. So he basically comes back home, but 16 miles away. So this, this collection of letters, uh, do you plan to keep them in the family or do you donate them to a museum? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I've scanned them all, digitized them all, transcribed them all. Right now we're keeping them in the family. At some point I probably would like to uh, give an electronic copy of the letters and probably the photos to the Eldred World War II Museum. Uh, my dad very much loved Eldred and the Eldred World War II Museum is a wonderful uh, little local museum which initially started to talk about um, World War II, but now focuses on veterans, and not just veterans from the Eldred area, area, veterans in general. So I imagine at some point we're going to try to make them available to the Eldred Museum. What do you hope people take away from this book? I hope when all is said and done, people take away from this book that there's many, many aspects to World War II and war in general that aren't as dramatic and high-powered and exciting is what you see in TV, but without these rear area personnel, wars don't get won, and even though these people, you know, aren't as flashy and famous and heroes and things like you would see in TV, um, they're very much heroes because they give up years of their life and they perform very important duties that allow the war effort to continue. And, uh, Maybe it's the social history, the behind-the-scenes story of World War II. Turns out almost 50% of soldiers probably were in rear areas. So this is a very common experience. It's not atypical at all. Well, we've been speaking with Michael Gabriel. He is the author of Physician Soldier, the South Pacific Letters of Captain Fred Gabriel from the 39th Station Hospital. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. I very much enjoyed it. Thank you for having me today. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.